Genesis. We have spent, we just decided we'd spend like, you know, a good week on every line in the first book of Genesis. So first book of the Bible. So we're just digging really deep on in. We've been, um, actually, I feel like we've moved very fast for all that we could have talked about. So it's Genesis 11 today. And just a brief recap, if you'll recall, um, Kevin and I spent a lot of time talking about creation, talking about what it was that God created, how God created that he said things like let there be and there was and it was good, that God made good things as he created in this world, um, that we can live a Genesis 1 story instead of a Genesis 3 story. And then uh, last week, two weeks ago, um, Kevin preached on the flood and talked a little bit about um, Noah and the flood and all of that. What meant, if you'll recall, Kevin talked about God hanging his bow in the sky, his keshet in the sky, um, so that, again, he promised no longer ever again would he flood the earth. So in these first opening chapters of Genesis, we have these basic building blocks for understanding our history. Now, next week, we're going to dive into patriarchal history, which is the patriarchs, starting with Abraham. But prior to this, these first Genesis 1 through 11 chapters are all before the patriarchs and sort of like primeval history, like something a little bit ancient, a little bit unique, maybe things we don't think about a lot, and maybe things that were pretty distant from that Mesopotamian world of those different myths as we think about flood and we think about creation narratives and all of that. So that's kind of where we've been. Today we're going to dive right into Genesis chapter 11, the Tower of Babel. And this is going to put a concluding marker on these first 11 chapters of Genesis, this sort of primeval history portion. And then we're going to go into patriarchs next week, okay? As we go into Genesis 11, I'm going to start to read the story a bit slowly, and I'm going to be breaking it down for us all verse by verse and talking about each verse as we go. Now, there's only nine verses, and this story is pretty succinct. Nine verses smushed all in together. It's not a long story. There's no other uh, parallel for this story in any other ancient Near Eastern literature. We don't have another story that's like this. We know that people built towers, and we've got all that information, but we don't have a story of where a god or gods came down to disrupt the building of a tower. This is a unique story to Genesis, to our Genesis account, and I think it has quite a bit to tell us about who God is, who his people are and are intended to be, and how things have been going these first 11 chapters, and it's really going to set the stage for why we desperately need Abraham to come, okay? Now, as we go through these first nine verses, the first Four verses, this chunk, is all going to be about people, their ideas, what they thought would be a good idea. Verse 5, God's going to be like, I don't think so. And then the rest of the four verses are going to be God's idea. So that's how we're going to kind of flip these things as we go through. Genesis 11, chapter 1, verse 1, excuse me. And it was all the earth, it was on all the earth, they all had one language and the same words. And in this passage in the Hebrew, and I've kind of used a different translation, sort of my own, as I've gone through. This phrase, all the earth, kol ha'aretz, gets repeated five times in in these nine verses of chapter 11. Five times kol ha'aretz appears. And whenever you see the number five, something recurring five times, and you see that phrasing over and over again, the author wants you to pay attention to it. And this is actually going to be the key as to one of the main things that the people do wrong. 
And we'll see if you guys can catch it based upon what we talked about in Genesis so far. And it was all the earth had one language and the same words. And they pulled up their stakes. Maybe in your English it says they migrated or traveled. But the Hebrew there for traveled is literally pulled up their stakes from the east. And they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. Now, if you recall, just before this event was the flood. And you can imagine how a tent with stakes in the ground would have survived in the flood. How well would that maybe have worked for you? Not super well. And I love that the Hebrew has this sort of earthy, like, we can use the word traveled, but we'd rather just say we pulled up our stakes. And it kind of tells you how they're living. They're still nomadic. They're still in these tents. And they're going to be for some time. And they're moving about the land. But they've just experienced this massive flood where all of these rivers have come, these four main rivers in Mesopotamia have come together. It's a very flood. It's a likely flood place. It's a People, it floods there all the time. People are afraid of floods. That's why we have a different of those flood narratives in that area. And as they're in that area, they pull up their stakes and they're starting to move east toward the land of Shinar and they're finding a valley. Now, since none of you, I don't think, have ever been to Shinar, I'll show you a picture. So it's flat, yeah? And there's a little bit of water there. You need water to make that work. But again, they're pulling up their tent pegs and they're going to this area. And just in case you're not quite sure again where Shinar is, here's Babel, the plain of Shinar. Here is Egypt Peninsula, Sinai Peninsula down here. Israel, Dead Sea, Sea of Galilee. So they're all the way over here. And if you want to know where that is today, yeah, Iraq. Okay? So that would be ancient Babylon. They said to one another, come let us make bricks. And burn them thoroughly. Now, they used brick instead of stone and bitumen or tar for mortar. And we have this wonderful editorial comment by the writer of Genesis. Because they're like, this is a weird thing. We don't do this. We don't burn bricks and burn them thoroughly in the fire. And in the Hebrew, it's like, let's fire them and fire them hard. We're going to burn them and burn them hard. This is technology. It's fantastic. And it doesn't need to exist in Canaan, in Israel, where they're going to go. It has to exist where these people are because there's no stone. So in this land, they're making mud brick. Now, most of the people, as they would make mud brick to live, see, in Israel, you have this great Cenomanian limestone that those of you who've been to Israel have totally paid attention to the limestone, right? And you've also known that that story that the rabbis tell that when the angels were set apart uh, on the earth, the surface of the earth, and they had different jobs, there was an angel whose job it was to scatter rocks, but that angel tripped and fell in Israel and dropped the entire bag there. So all of the rocks that you ever need to find are in Israel. So our writer of Genesis wants to stop and tell us the reason why they're doing this brick thing is they don't have any stone. And if you picture back in your mind that slide I show you of what the plain of Shinar looks like, you didn't see big rocky stone. In Israel, you can, if you want to set up a monument, you can go find a big stone and set it up. You can just quarry out a hillside. Every stone, every rock, every mountain is all there for you to do that with. But here they're starting this technology of sun-baked bricks, but not just sun-baked bricks, kiln-fired bricks. They're starting to say, we need to make sure that these bricks are even more sturdy, more able to support the weight of a tall structure than even just our sun-baked bricks, which there was that also available in Israel. But here we're going to fire them. We're going to make them very, very hot. 
But because you could only have so much fuel to make the fire hot, these are all very practical things, right, everybody? They used this thing called bitumen, or we would call it tar. If you've been to the La Brea tar pits, that's what that is. There's a whole bunch by the Dead Sea. And we often use the word asphalt, even in ancient times. So you can see it just kind of comes right. It's a natural organic material. It's sticky. And the people said, let us make bricks, mud bricks. We're going to burn them really hard. And then we're going to take this bitumen mortar and we're going to make these bricks stick together. And that's how we're going to start to build. So you can immediately see that what's actually quite fascinating about this is that this writer of Genesis has very intimate knowledge of brick building and city building techniques in Babylon. And even some of the phrasings in the Hebrew are exact same phrasings that the Babylonians are going to use. And they're also used in Mesopotamia to talk about how to build. So this is about a very specific area and specific behaviors and building techniques in that area. Verse 4. And then they said... Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens so that we can make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. That's the next time that whole earth phrase is going to be used in the Bible, in this little passage here. Now, note first that they say, come, let us. So they're trying to gather a group effort here. They're going to try to get everybody centralized around one particular purpose. And they want to build not just a tower, but a city. The tower is going to be part of what they're going to build. And there's a purpose for it, right? The tower is going to have its top in the heavens. They want it right up there. And they want to make a name for themselves. That's why they're building. They want to try to reach God. They're trying to become like God themselves, and they're rejecting their God-given purpose. Because if you'll recall, in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, God says, go, he blesses them, he says, be fruitful, increase in number, they've apparently done that, and fill the earth and subdue it, and that's what they're unwilling to do. And he says it again in Genesis 9, after the flood, and he's repurposing again his creation. He's saying, here's what I need you to do. Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the whole earth. And that same phrasing that's there. And instead, the people are saying, we don't want to be scattered. We don't want to be scattered over the face of the earth. We're going to reject the God-given purpose that you've given us, and we are not going to fill the whole earth. We want to stay together. So God says no. Now, this is the kind of tower that they were building. This one's still there in Babylon. We know that there had about 30, 40 different of these ziggurat towers all around. And you can see that in some ways it looks a bit like a mountain, right? Again, picture back to that plain of Shinar where they are. There's no mountains around. They're trying to reach up to the heavens, to the sky, and they want to build this beautiful, awesome mountain so that they can reach up to God. They say literally its top is in the heavens. And of the other ziggurats, these other towers that have been found in Babylon, these are some of their names. House of the mountain, house of the mountain of the universe, house of the link between heaven and earth, house of the foundation of heaven and earth. And the Babylonians believed that they were at the center of the universe and that their mountains that they built were the navel of the universe. And Babel, Babylonian Babel meant the gate of God. So they were going to build the gate of God himself and reach up into the heavens and try to attain for themselves that heavenly location. 
And this is a small, it's always a bit when you start to think about how mountains have functioned, even in our faith background, Mount Sinai and Mount of Beatitudes and the Mount of Transfiguration and even the Mount of Olives and going up onto Mount Moriah and Mount Zion, that all of the time this sort of thought of ascending up onto a mountain has this picture, picture a mountain in your head where the sky and the earth meet. As you stand below and you look up at a mountain, you see where the sky and the earth meet. And so they want to get up there and they want to try to get as far up into the heavens as possible. So now we're starting to get a clue that there's a couple things wrong with this scenario, right? One, they're building for themselves. They're building to get into heaven so they can be like God. They're building in order to get heavenward, skyward, and they're building so that they won't be scattered. So they're rejecting their God-given purpose. They're trying to become like God himself. And if you've been paying attention, you might be thinking, aren't we back in the Garden of Eden again? And we say, yeah, sure. I think part of what God's trying to tell us through these first 11 chapters of Genesis is that he tried. He tried to make this work with all of humanity at once. But it's not working. And so instead, just like the entire earth was filled with wickedness when God has to wipe off all of that wickedness off the face of the earth with the flood, now it's all filled again with wickedness, all of humanity together, rejecting the purpose for which they were created, refusing to do what it is that God's asked them to do, and even in all of their hubris, trying to become like God's themselves. And God is saying, this isn't working. I'm going to have to pick one guy. So all of this is paving the way for Abraham. In fact, even temple inscriptions that we found there of the cylinders, these cylinders would be buried at the foundation stones of these ziggurats. And one said, on account of the great name he made for himself, he was received among the gods for their assembly. So this guy's like, I built this. And this is my great name. And because I built it, I'm going to be received by God. Similar to the pyramids. Nebuchadnezzar, who's much later, he restores the ziggurat at Babylon. And he said, his cylinder says, The fortifications of Esagil and Babylon I strengthened and made an everlasting name for my reign. So this is common. This is exactly what people do. They want to build for themselves. They want to build for their own name. They want to build a monument that makes them glorious. Isaiah 2 talks about it. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that's exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and the oaks of Bashan, and for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low. And human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols will totally disappear. Isaiah recognizes that people are doing this in his day. Still trying to build for their name. Still trying to pretend as though they themselves are gods. And that there's no division between heaven and earth. Which Genesis chapter 1 taught us how important that was right at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There's a natural division here. And there's a problem when humans start to pretend that they are somebody that they aren't. It's kind of like stuff we do today, right? So here on the left, we've got Dubai and then Singapore. No, Shanghai. And then the World Tower in New York and Saudi Arabia. Four of the tallest buildings in the world. 
And they compete and debate over who gets to be tallest. And some guy stands up there with like one last little flag and tries to get to the tallest that they can be. Maybe not much has changed. Or maybe it's just a barge on the San Francisco Bay, you know, trying to become really awesome as they're going to sell some very fancy Google glass or I don't know, maybe. Maybe you're always, all of us, the human inclination is to build a name for ourselves, to build a monument for ourselves that will have an everlasting name so people remember us. And for all of humanity, this has been part of what we want to do. I think it's pretty normal. We want to live forever, don't we? And so we start about, how can I build something that will last longer than me? I'm mortal, but I want to be immortal. And how can I have something that will last long and forever? But fascinatingly enough, when God creates, he doesn't do it with brick and mortar or with stone. When God creates, he does it with his words. And he just says, let there be. And it's good. And those are things that are going to last forever and ever. That's his everlasting name, that which can be brought into existence with his very word. And it turns out, in this story, we're going to discover that the technology of language is a lot more powerful than any technology that we see in this world around us. So verse 5, here's where the story changes. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the B'nai Ha'adam were building. That's this interesting phrase. It means that the people were building, but it really means like the sons of the earth or the sons of Adam. And it reminds the reader that they are of the earth. And isn't it hilarious that they're trying to build this really tall thing, but God has to come down to see it. Like there's this implied joke right there, right there. You should all be laughing. Like, so they're building this huge tower to get up to God. And God's like, all right, I'll go down there. Even though they're trying to get as high as possible, I'm going to go down and check out what these sons of the dirt are doing. (laughs) The sons of the land. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Now, remember at the beginning, they said, come, let us build. And so God says, come, let us go down. And so God starts to go down. And as he goes down to look and he's going to confuse their language, the word there for confuse in Hebrew is this really unique form of the root for to confuse. And it actually is just the reverse of the word to build. So you've been trying to build, but I'm going to reverse that and I'm going to confuse. I'm going to do the exact opposite of what it is you've been trying to do. The exact opposite of your intent is what's going to be the result. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. What was their goal? They said, I don't want to be scattered. Let's build this so we're not scattered. And God's like, okay. I'm going to confuse your language. You're going to be scattered. And that's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused Balal, the language of the whole world, the Kol Haaretz. And we have this moment where Babel had meant in the language of the Babylonians, it meant gate of God. But God says, you know that word Babel? That word sounds a lot like our word for Balal, for confused. And now even in Hebrew, if you say Babel, what does it mean? If a baby babbles, it's nonsense. It's gibberish. It's not a language that works. And God comes down and he confuses. That's why it's called Babel. Not because it's the gate of the God, because it's the place of confusion. 
And from there, the Lord scattered them over the whole earth. A human enterprise that runs counter to the will of God is inherently doomed to failure. So this intent that they have at the beginning, I know what we'll do. Let's build something so we don't get scattered, so we can have a name and a monument to ourselves, and so we can become like God. And God goes, okay, sure, no problem. I'm going to confuse your language. I'm going to scatter you throughout the entire earth, and you're going to completely lose your way. And Babel is not going to any longer be a symbol of the gateway to God. Instead, it's going to be a symbol of alienation from God and from one another of complete disunity. Because again, though all of humanity at this point has this evil inclination to become like gods themselves, God promised he put his bow in the sky that he wasn't going to flood the earth again. So now he's going to have to do it in another way. And he's going to scatter them out. They will fulfill the purpose that God has for them. He will scatter them out across the face of the earth. So how will we build? And will we build with monuments or words? Because this technology of building, even when we talk about those skyscrapers or the Google barge or all of the amazing things that are allowing us all to live life right now, all of those things can go away. But the words in which we share, what we build into the hearts of our children, the builders of Abraham themselves, that goes on forever. When we say, let there be, when God says, let there be light, light exists and it goes on and on. All of these things that God creates are beautifully made with language, with the power of words. And I think a lot of us might say, but I don't have enough to build like a tent in someone's yard, let alone, right? Silicon Valley real estate prices, I'm not building anything anytime soon. I'm lucky if my boss lets me build something from a Monday through a Friday. But the truth is all of us are building something. We're all creating a monument to something. We're all creating a name for some purpose or another. Will it be for us or for the king? And will we build with harmony or with chaos? Will we build for our own name or for his? We all have that choice. Every single one of us, when we go home tonight and we speak words to a friend or to a loved one, whether on the phone, whether in our community, when we go to work tomorrow, whenever we're at our our Bibles, we have the power to build or to tear down the moment we open our mouths. And it's the very thing that God used to create the world that he's now having to disrupt amongst these people because what they're choosing to build with their language and their bricks is not godly. And he's having to go in, sit down, and disrupt that so it can be used again for his purpose. All right, so you guys ready for the cherry on top? Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans, then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language. Babel's reversed. 
God's so merciful. He's so grace-filled. They saying, you know what? Language used to confuse, but in this moment, right now, at the giving of the Holy Spirit, we're going to make you speak one language again. Instead of disunity, it's going to be unity. Instead of confusion, there will be clarity. And in one language, we will begin to announce the good news. And instead of being scattered, you're now going to be sent out with purpose, with intentionality. And it's going to change the whole world. As a result of what God does in that moment, he's so grace-filled, he's so loving, that he says, I'm not going to let you continue to be Genesis 11 people. I'm going to now let you be Acts 2 people. And Acts 2 people have this same language that you speak, and you're going to get to go out and share this good news, this great good news of the language of Jesus Christ. You're going to go and share that around the entire world to every language, to every nation. Have you ever traveled in an international context and you find yourself sitting down or even here in the Bay Area and all of a sudden you're, you're next to somebody that you know knows, like you know that they know about who Jesus is? And in that moment, even if you don't have a shared verbal language, there's something that you share. There's something deeper than all of that and there's a unity that can be found in that moment that you can't find any other way. And God says, sure, let's build again. But this time, it'll be a monument to my name. And it will go out to the entire earth, that the whole earth will know that there's a God in Israel and that his son is Jesus the Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. So the charge is to go and to build something beautiful, something good, and not the opposite of what God's told you to do. That's a good suggestion, right? Just... Good note. Good traveling note. Try to not do the opposite of what he asked you to do. All right. Next week, we're going to jump right on into our Abraham story. And we'll start to see how all of this begins to play out and the need we have for this wonderful patriarch, the father of our faith. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord, so much for tonight. Thank you for this opportunity to be people united by this one language of your love demonstrated to the entire world through your son, Jesus. And God, we pray right now that wherever we are in our lives, whatever it is that we're doing, that our lives would be marked by these words of love, that our lives would be marked by the words of Christ. They would bring hope and joy and peace and healing into a world that is fractured, that is without unity, that sometimes builds out of chaos and disharmony. And instead, God, we pray that you would give us a message that starts to bring creation back again. Lord, we bless you that you're a God that's so merciful and so grace-filled that you desire to reverse Babel. Thank you, God, for including us in that promise and for allowing us to see your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.